Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the government's recently released plans for the easing of the lockdown, as well as where we are with Brexit negotiations, and the possible implications that all of this may have on the markets. With Phil Attreed, Head of Investment Consulting, Sophie Traherne, UK Government Relations Expert, and Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. I'm Phil Attreed, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting, and this week we have our regular in-house expert from Government Relations, Sophie Traherne, who will also be discussing the latest announcements and developments. Uh, we also have our Head of Asset Allocation, uh, Jean-Paul Yeagers, sharing his thoughts on how and if these developments impact financial markets. And what a busy week we've had, even by recent standards. We've had the government announce drastic changes to the coronavirus containment measures, and the governor of the Bank of England uh, in the news with a disclosure that interventions by the Bank of England were needed back in March uh, to ensure that the government could continue to fund itself. So, Sophie, let's start with you and the coronavirus. We had the big announcement this week on further key lockdown restrictions being eased. Uh, This was mainly focused on reducing the two metre rule and opening up pubs, restaurants and other parts of the hospitality sector. Could you just quickly cover off what we've seen announced and and, and I suppose what this means for the government uh, and the recovery more broadly maybe? Yes, absolutely. So, um, as you said, this week, the Prime Minister gave a statement to the House of Commons where he declared that the country's long national hibernation is coming to an end. Uh, And he obviously outlined uh, the most significant easing of the lockdown restrictions we've seen so far. And he, he essentially started off by saying that their assessment of the virus is that it doesn't appear to be a significant risk of a second peak that might overwhelm the NHS. And so this means they can now make uh, some changes. He did emphasise that caution will remain our watchword and and basically each change is reversible. So you'll have seen the headlines, but in summary, the government will be changing the two metre rule from the 4th of July. So where it's possible to keep two metres apart, people should, but where it's not, they should remain one metre plus apart. So one metre plus any other mitigations. From the 4th of July, two households of any size should be able to meet in any setting inside or out. And the real headline grabber was, of course, that the government will reopen restaurants and pubs, as well as some uh, close contact services like hairdressers, uh, as well as hotels, guest houses and a range of other leisure businesses like playgrounds, cinemas, museums, community centres, etc., And the government are already looking to introduce measures to support this announcement. So the business and planning bill has just been introduced to Parliament and this will allow pubs, restaurants, cafes in England to serve customers outside. And this legislation will no doubt be rushed through Parliament in time for that 4th of July reopening. And, you know, I I wouldn't underestimate what kind of what an important moment this is for the government. Public support for the government's actions recently regarding the virus wasn't really where they wanted it to be. And so this is an opportunity for the Prime Minister to really reset the agenda and and look ahead positively to the future. And, you know, so far so good. Recent polling shows that the public are largely supportive of the recent announcements, with the YouGov poll showing that 40% of those surveyed were very supportive of restaurants, pubs and hairdressers, museums, etc. reopening, with 29% opposing the measures. 
and the British people are increasingly of the view that the government is moving at the right pace on lifting the restrictions. 47% believe that the government has struck the right balance with just over a third thinking the government is moving too fast. And, you know, this is a, was a, a very different picture uh, to what we saw uh, in May. So it does seem like the trend is now moving in the government's uh, favour. I should also quickly point out that there is much more to come from the government, uh, with the Prime Minister expected to make a big speech, although not completely confirmed, but expected next week. And this is an opportunity for him to really set out his vision for the post-COVID, post-Brexit world. Uh, you may have seen the briefings uh, around this speech. The theme will be build, 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 with the Prime Minister keen to get back to his manifesto themes and commitments from December. So we can expect um, lots on the recovery, more about levelling up agenda, investing in infrastructure, tech, innovation and so on. And then the final big moment to look out for regarding the recovery will be the July statement by the Chancellor, this will no doubt build on the themes from the Prime Minister's speech. Um, again, probably that focus on investment, green economic recovery, infrastructure and skills. And, you know, these big moments all aiming to show real momentum for the recovery and act as a, as a real turning point for both the economy and for the government. Although, obviously, as always, so much is dependent on the, you know, this potential for a second wave and, and keeping that R rate down. Thanks, Sophie. Really interesting and wide-reaching developments there and, and some things to look forward to. Uh, and I'm sure a relief to many, not not least that opening of barbers and hairdressers as we all leave our houses. I'm sure that'll be a relief for, for, for many people. JP, how do those measures compare with what you're seeing more broadly, though, uh, on a global scale? Hello, Phil. Uh, yes, so if what we see is that in Europe, uh, just as what we see in the UK, the data looks more encouraging. We see that most governments have been easing uh, lockdowns. Where we see in particular uh, some concerns is in the US and in Brazil, where the number of cases has been increasing. We also see that the, the, the New York is now imposing quarantines of 14 days when people travel to uh, some of the eight states where we see very high infection rates. So if people go to Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, Florida, uh, Carolina, or Texas or Utah, then people have to quarantine for 14 days. And that's something I think that will stay here for a bit longer. So what we see is that governments uh, ease lockdowns or start imposing more restrictions until a vaccine is developed and distributed. But it's important here, I think, that containment measures so far seem to work. And what we also know is that we are now better able to track and trace and impose measures more targeted if we see any secondary outbreaks. Thanks, JP. Uh, another topic on the government's agenda, lest we've forgotten, of course, is Brexit. Um, Sophie, there seem to be further rounds of negotiations uh, on the future of that EU-UK relationship, um, sort of due to be happening over, over the summer months. Uh, but as you've mentioned before, it, it, I assume it, it should still be the case that we'd expect uh, the real crunch point for the negotiations to, to be sometime in the autumn, maybe. Is that still the case? Yes. So, yeah, last Monday we had the much anticipated high level stock take meeting between Boris Johnson and Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. And as expected, there, there wasn't any particular breakthrough or significant decisions made at this meeting. But the leaders did agree that new momentum in the negotiations was needed and there was support to continue discussions in July, August and September in a more intensive format than before. Um, importantly, also the UK, which we knew they would, but they formally rejected the option to extend the transition period. And as we've talked about before, this is the, the deadline for requesting 
this extension was uh, is due to be on the 1st of July. But because the UK has formally rejected it, um, this deadline is, is probably now a bit of a non-event. Um, but it was quite significant because the EU confirmed publicly that they've noted that the UK won't ask for an extension. So it seems that the EU have now really accepted this position and that it isn't just kind of the rumblings of Brexiteer backbenchers, it's formal government policy, which is being recognised by the EU. So coming to your question, this all increases the focus on the end of Q3, kind of beginning of Q4 for reaching uh, a final agreement uh, on the negotiations in that future relationship. So um, yes, autumn still appears to be kind of the final final deadline, the crunch point for the negotiations. But having said that, it is well worth keeping an eye on how these discussions go throughout the summer. So June and July, we've got these special sessions between the chief negotiators and then the fifth round of formal negotiations will be at the end of July and the sixth round will be mid-August. So I think there'll be some some key briefings and key moments coming out of those as the summer progresses. Lots of reasons to have you coming back to the podcast, uh, Sophie, over the coming months. But on the sticking points, you've talked about these before, so issues such as you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol and the level playing field um, you know, between the EU and the UK. Do you think there are now possible compromises that, that are being brought to the table? You know, do you think there's a way forward on some of these key points to deliver a deal by the autumn, if indeed that's possible? So after the meetings last week, the, the EU was still very clear that any deal was only possible within the framework of the political declaration signed last year. And they've been really consistent on this point. But Having said that, the talks do appear to be in a better place. Um, no one walked away from the table at the high-level stock take meeting, and both sides appear to, to really want to try and break the deadlock. And, you know, it should be recognised that there, there have been some small signs of movement from the EU, including on the highly political issue of fisheries. So cautiously, quite a few people are talking about the fact that there is genuine momentum behind a deal at this stage. Um, and the kind of the compromise or the format of that deal on a very high level would be the principle that the UK has the sovereign right to move away from the EU's level playing field rules should it choose. But if it did, the EU would have the right to impose tariffs on UK goods. So this would allow both sides to claim victory. The PM can say that the UK has the right to chart its own course without being bound by EU rules. While obviously Brussels can point out that it's got the tools to respond to any UK attempt to undercut its standards. So you can see a deal forming on this basis. And I suppose in trying to directly answer your question at the moment, yes, there does seem to be a way through for a deal and there is momentum at the moment. But as always with Brexit, this could all change very quickly. So definitely a question to revisit after the summer. Um, one, one final thing I should just flag is the Chancellor did set out this week in detail how the Treasury intends to regulate UK financial services uh, post-Brexit. So essentially looking at where the UK will align or diverge from the EU on key financial services files and regulations. So some detail to pick through on financial services from this week as well. Thanks, Sophie. Um, so, JP, for something as important as Brexit, how do you and the team respond to, or dare I uh, even suggest it, leverage this in an investment context? Some might suggest uh, there are opportunities to take a view on these possible outcomes. Well, Phil, that, that's in some sense, it's not very easy to use really in an investment context. Uh, as and, and I think what we have seen clearly with the withdrawal negotiation has shown quite vividly it's that not it's not only about getting the outcome correct, so whether something is being voted down or not, but also the interpretation for markets. 
So where we had a historic defeat, and remember this was an event where investors were expecting sterling to weaken on a, on a defeat, it actually rose on the news. So it tells you that with investments, if some processes are very well telegraphed, that a lot possibly can be discounted. And, and, and the same applies to today. Yeah, I mean, but we, we just heard from Sophie about, I suppose, the politics of compromise and the sticking points. Is that something that you, is it something you guys are factoring in uh, when investing for clients? Well, it, it, it's, we, we continue to monitor it closely and carefully listen to all the updates that come from Sophie and her team. Um, but it's not really something where we would have an insight or an edge in the process. Remember, in previous negotiations, we've seen that take quite a lot of twists and turns along the way. Uh, I think it would take quite an outsized market movements away from fundamentals for us to get really use this in investment decisions with uh, yeah sufficient confidence. So sticking sticking to your robust processes, uh, I have no doubt. But and and also I suppose not selling down UK stock exposure just yet. Uh, not yet. So the difficulty is that that listed companies in the UK have actually global exposure. So it's not even necessarily that you that you buy predominantly domestic UK economic exposure. So some sectors might have a little bit more relation to the UK domestic economy, for instance, financials. But equally, there may be other sectors where we see uh, the impact being in the other direction. So we, we do know that companies and economies adapt over time and they rebalance over time. Um, and if anything, in this whole process, we will be looking to assets where we think we have a close link with the domestic economy. So for instance, if we think about gills, so here that's related more to UK inflation expectations or to policy set by the Bank of England or to sterling, which in the past has shown quite sensitive to the specific developments in the UK. But also here we have to realize that a lot of international components driving the asset prices as well. So if you think about interest rates in the UK, it's not just the UK. We see that headline news of events happening globally, uh, it pushes up or draw the, it pulls down interest rates over time as well. Quite. It's, it's an interesting point you make on, on sort of UK listed companies. You know, people you know, regularly comment on FTSE 100 and, and the sort of significant exposure um, that those companies have in, in terms of overseas sales, overseas revenue, and obviously, therefore, the, the profits. But actually, it even creeps down into the mid-cap space. I'm always surprised uh, how global some of our sort of mid-tier companies are as well. Um, so, JP, finally, as I mentioned, the, the Bank of England has been in the news lately uh, as well. So on a couple of matters, actually, a change to their strategy, but also the, the, gov- the new governor, Bailey, Um, who was featured in several interviews and articles where he actually highlighted earlier on in the week uh, the Bank of England's intervention with quantitative easing, so QE, um, and and the fact that that avoided the possibility that government funding might stop. What what do you guys make of all of that? Yeah, based based on the media articles we have seen, it looks like the Bank of England has been quite busy. Um, Initially, we saw a lot of media articles on developments, whether negative policy rates would be considered by the Bank of England which in initial stages it, 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 it was signaling it was not open to, but now we've seen they're more open to and, and are considering it. We also had some articles on that the Bank of England is adapting its strategy. So in that sense, it's first looking to unwind the QE bits before it would even consider raising policy rates. Well, this is actually an attempt, we think, 
to to make sure that the expectations for policy rates are lower for longer so that we see in the near term so for the next one two three years that interest rates are firmly set around current policy rates and that's something what we see at the moment so if you look to two or three year interest rates we actually see they're they're zero or negative so expectations are for a very yeah that, that policy rates are pinned down uh, around current levels um it, it, based on uh, what we so what we have also seen is that central banks have been incredibly innovative and adapting to the new state of economic situation very quickly. So the playbook that they have been used from previous crises has been unfolded very quickly because this pandemic has been very visible. Um, and it actually shows that we yeah, should never underestimate central banks. It was not too long ago that a lot of investors agreed that central banks had run out of so-called bullets. So that there was very little leeway for central banks to cushion any blow to the economy. Well, we have seen now unprecedented measures across a host of developed market central banks. On the article of Governor Bailey, uh, yeah, I think, of course, all central banks uh, will work on a narrative that what they did is necessary. I don't think uh, I've, I've, I've ever seen, to my knowledge, a central bank who claimed that their action was not necessary. Um, and, and this is something that's very hard to really verify. Uh, there, there are no visible counterfactuals, um, but it is something which is quite topical because how, how do central banks calibrate their policy or set the policy and know that it's in the right terms of magnitude. So the example where we see the German institutional court, constitutional courts challenging the ECB is just one example. Thanks, JP. I think we'll look to leave it there for this week. It looks like there's plenty uh, to look out for uh, and monitor pretty closely, I think, in terms of obviously the viral outbreak developments as, as well as Brexit sort of coming back um, into the news headlines as well. One of the key takeaways for me, though, will certainly be that some events such as these are definitely a lot harder to, to use in an investment context than others. And, and you know, as we talk about that robust process that you and the team have in place when thinking about allocating for our portfolios is always very important. Um, thank you both. And thank you to our listeners for joining us uh, for this edition of Word on the Street. Please do continue to share the podcast with friends and family as we look forward to welcoming you back next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.